Good morning, everybody. It is really, really good to be back. You may be aware that I was in India last weekend, and my punk brother stood in my place. Some of you have suggested that I uh, step aside and let him be the senior pastor of this church, which was more enthusiasm than I was looking for, but he did a a great job, and I, I love my brother. Uh, if, you, if you're not aware, he is uh, a recent addition to our staff, serving as the junior high, I'm sorry, high school and junior high pastor at our Wheaton campus and doing just an amazing job. To be reunited with him gives me incredible joy. When, when I was in India, I wanted to just tell you a little bit about my trip. You know, some, sometimes when we pastors go away by coming back and conveying some details, you can experience vicariously through our description a bit of what we went through. And this, I hope you'll find tremendously encouraging. The nation of India is huge. It's, it's got 1.2 billion people in it. One out of every six people on planet Earth live in the country of India. It's just massive. And unfortunately, the northern half of it is extremely unchristian only or less than 1% Christian. They're mostly Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim. And as a result, with that many people and that few Christians, it is a, an amazing opportunity for the advance of the cause of Jesus Christ. And even though there's persecution and even though there's a kind of a heavy darkness in the spiritual atmosphere, God's cause is advancing. Here's a picture of a, a, a dear friend of mine. His name is Bijou Thomas, and he started a ministry called TIM, or Transformation India Movement. This is actually a well that's being dedicated. Bijou and his ministry have built so many of these wells in little villages that don't have access to pure drinking water. And so it's a great ministry. Tim, 13 years ago, was started as a church planting endeavor. And God is so blessed. Bijou has recruited and trained 50 pastors. Uh, Here's a picture of a young pastor and his wife. Uh, (laughs) This guy's saying, I love arranged marriage. Uh, She's a cutie, huh? And he's saying, that works well for me. The, the 50 pastors are, sorry, that was a distraction. <laughs> the 50 pastors are inspiring. Uh, they absolutely love Christ and are courageously building a church in a context that's very hostile towards Christianity. And yet, despite the hostility, they're, they're experiencing tremendous fruit. People are coming to Christ all the time. Here's a picture of a baptism. There, while we were there, this is me over here in the blue, we baptized 20 new believers who are so enthusiastic. Yeah, well, praise God for them. And in, and in India, when you come public with your devotion to Jesus Christ, there are relational consequences, often families rejecting their, their family member because of that faith. And yet they're doing it by the scores. Here's another picture. They've got a, a sewing school uh, that they offer in many of the villages because there's so much unemployment. And yet if you can help these ladies gain a skill like sewing, they can use that both to clothe their families and have a business. And so it's a great opportunity. For 30 ladies, and this, this is a sewing school graduation we participated in, 30 ladies finished their six-month 
course. And one of the American pastors at the end said, ladies, can I ask you a question? Did any of you, none of them were Christians to start, but he asked, did any of you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior as a result of this six-month course? Sixteen of them stood up and with joy attested that they had found Christ through this experience. And so I convey that to you. Oh, you want applause? That's a good player. Sometimes you wonder, you know, what is the cause of Christ doing on the other side of the planet? We see our own culture and the struggles we have in an increasingly secular society, but we wonder, is is the cause advancing elsewhere? I can't speak of all countries, but I've been now to this area, the state of Bihar in India, three times now. I'm getting to know these pastors. I'm getting to know these new Christians, and I am delighted to tell you that God's cause is just growing and expanding rapidly there. And you're a part of it. Sometimes it's difficult to see that because, you know, we're over on this side of the planet and we're giving our money to the church, but we may not realize that that money is being translated into changed lives and untold fruit here, near, and far. And, and I just want you to know, Bijou looked at me in the eyes again, and he just said, Jeff, you, you need to know that our ministry cannot happen without the prayers and financial support of your church. And so I pass that on to you. If, if you are a giver in our church, you need to know that you, through your generosity, are being utilized to advance the cause of Jesus Christ in India and many other countries. By God's grace, our church is giving a million dollars, nearly a million dollars every year to the cause of missions far away. And that is a great privilege and joy for all of us. Shall we turn? To God unboxed. We are studying the Ark of the Covenant. All that happened to it because it reveals the heart of God. Uh, Let's do a little review just in case you uh, could benefit from a little timeline. The Ark was created in the days of Moses at Mount Sinai. God said the Ark will be uh, the, the symbol of the presence of God in your midst. God says, it's the meeting place. I want to meet with you. I want to be with you. Live in the center of your community. And then then we looked at Joshua. After Moses, Joshua led the people into the promised land. It's called the season of conquest because there were so many battles as they fought for the land God had promised. And remember, we learned that the Ark of the Covenant was carried into the battle. Not because it was a weapon, but because it was a symbol of God's presence and power. And God's power came to bear in those battles. And God's power can be brought to bear in our lives as well. Last week, Dave taught about the season of the judges. After they entered the promised land, for a long period of time, Israel was led by these people called judges. And Eli was a priest in the days of the judges. And that was a bad time. Remember the Philistines? conquered and captured the ark. The, the very symbol of God's presence was stolen into enemy hands. Eli fell over dead, but God was at work in those days of difficulty, in those Ichabod seasons where it seems the glory of God has departed. God is, in fact, still at work. 
And that brings us to the era of the kings. After being ruled by judges, Israel said, we want kings. God agreed. David was the second king. And the ark is still central in the the land of Israel. And in this particular passage we're about to study, we're going to see that David wants to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Let's read. 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you didn't bring a Bible, maybe you want to grab the one in the seat in front of you. But 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 2. David and all of his men went to Bala, that's a city in Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God. Up. That's a reference to Jerusalem. David and his army have just conquered Jerusalem and won it from the Jebusites. And God has made it clear to David's heart that this city is to be their new capital. This is the beginning of Jerusalem as the city of God. And David says, we got to bring the ark up. It's up because Jerusalem is a city on a hill, high elevation. And so to go up to Jerusalem was how they referred to it. And David said, we need to bring it up from there. And then look at this description of the ark. I love it. The ark of God, which is called by the name Yahweh, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. The ark is a box. It's also a throne. And those angels are cherubim. It was above, between those angels that God manifested his glory in a ball of smoke and fire. And, and, and David said, the throne of God should be in the capital city. Let's move it from uh, Bala and into Jerusalem. Let's look at the sacred praise parade as the ark is brought to Jerusalem. Here we go, verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab. He's the guy who'd been caring for the ark, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. Ahio was walking in front of it, and David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. A praise parade. Can you imagine all the people marching down the road, following the ark as it's being pulled on this cart, and the people are just celebrating the Lord? At first glance, it seems like a beautiful passage. But there's a problem in the passage. Something's very concerning. And that's this first phrase. They set the ark of God on a new cart? Folks, God had been so clear in his instructions that when the ark was transported, it is to be carried. He labeled a certain tribe, a certain group of priests as those who carry the ark. He said you got to put poles that go through the rings and those poles will be used to carry the ark. He even said put it on your shoulder, those poles, as you carry it. The Lord was crystal clear. And yet, they said, Lord, that, that, that pole carrying it on the shoulders, that's a good idea. But Lord, we have a better idea. It's going to get a little heavy and it'll cause cramps on the shoulders. And so let's build an a cart. Not any old cart, Lord. Let's make it a new shiny cart. Huh? What do you think? You know, I can imagine the frustration of God. 
Have I not been crystal clear on how I wanted moved? I mean, how could I have been more clear? And the people regarding this sacred uh, worship artifact, they flagrantly ignored the instructions of God. You can just see God going, I can't believe this. You know, sometimes one bad decision leads to another bad decision. And sure enough, this rebellion leads to another act of rebellion. Let's look at the next verse, verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. You know, when you entrust God's ark to beasts of burden, you're going to have a problem. God knew that. That's why he had instructed, he wanted it carried by four guys on each corner. The, the, the oxen apparently stumbled, and that caused the ark to jerk, and sure enough, it starts to tip. And though God had said, do not touch the ark, Uzzah reached out with his big, fat, greasy mitts and put his hands on the ark of God. You say, but come on, give the guy a break. He was trying to help. He was trying to help, you're right. But he was also in violation of what he knew God had commanded. Don't touch it. What's the Lord to do? (laughs) This is where the passage gets tough. Here's what happens. Verse 7, The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of this irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down. And he died there beside the ark of God. Wow. This is a passage that has caused many people to really struggle with God's heart. Remember we've said that this whole ark thing reveals the heart of God. And some people say, I don't like what this reveals. God seems to have a temper, uncontrollable temper. Just bam, dead, that's enough. You know, And you're like, come on, really? Really? And to make matters more challenging, this is not an isolated occurrence. God strikes other people dead in the Bible too. Let's just be frank and honest about it. In fact, before this event, way back in the days of Moses, Nadab and Abihu were two sons, two nephews of Moses who were entrusted with conducting worship services. And on the day that the ark was inaugurated as a worship uh, implement, The day that the tabernacle was completed, this grand opening of the ark and the tabernacle, these young men were leading the worship service and they were to light a fire on the altar and God had given instructions on where the fire, God had provided sacred fire. There was a perpetual lamp burning and God said, use that fire to light the altar. And these guys said, ah, we heard the instructions. We don't need to do that. And so I don't know if they had a light around them or what, but they used some other fire ignoring God's instructions, bam, God struck them dead on the spot. And you say, well, that's just the Old Testament God. He had a temper problem back then. But thankfully in the New Testament, the Lord is all warm and fuzzy and lovey, and we don't need to worry about anything like that. In the New Testament, there was a couple, husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe you recall this event. They were giving at the church generously, 
but not quite as generously as they made it out to be. They had lied about how much they had given. They lied in order to impress people. They wanted to be viewed as so generous. And so they lied, and God's like, what am I going to do? Bam! The couple fell dead in church that day. And so now you're like, holy cow. I mean, it appears that God strikes dead everyone who violates his commands. No, you're here. And, uh, (laughs) you know, you are a sinner, just like they were. God's grace is amazing. And then it asks, well, then why those three incidents did God strike them dead? And, And the answer is this. These were pivotal moments in salvation history where God wanted to teach a lesson. Pivotal moments. Do you see that? Let me just be clear. The first one with Nadab and Abihu was on the inauguration of the temple, the tabernacle. This is the first day of that era. And then uh, this moment at the parade going into Jerusalem here, is the moment of the beginning of Jerusalem. This is the inauguration of the holy city of Jerusalem. Ananias and Sapphira, that's the inauguration of the era of the church. At the beginning of these eras, God chose to teach us all a great lesson. You say, well, the poor people who were the object of that lesson. And the the truth is, if they were the children of God and we assume they were, it was good for them. They were immediately brought to heaven. Very painful for the ones who lost them, but very powerful in the lesson that it taught. What is the lesson for us? If, If these guys lost their lives, we better get the lesson. Here's the lesson. The lesson is that God is holy. And holy means that God is morally perfect, without sin and without rebellion. And he judges severely and appropriately those who are in rebellion to him. Now, you say, but there's grace. You're right, there is grace. And we thank God for the grace. We're here because of grace. But that doesn't change the holiness of God. And if the lesson is that God is holy, it tells us something about God. It also tells us something about us. This lesson is that we should have this thing called the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is a concept a lot of people struggle with, but the Bible teaches that part of how we relate to God should be this trembling awe at his moral perfection, at his majesty, at his righteous judgment. Uh, It says uh, when Ananias and Sapphira died, it said that the fear of the Lord seized the whole church. And that's what God wants. We don't talk a lot about the fear of the Lord, but we must talk some about it. And this passage gives us opportunity to reflect on that once again. On that day that Uzzah died, the fear of the Lord was in the hearts of the people. Now, the concept of the fear of the Lord can go bad. And to be honest, it went bad on this day, Uzzah died. The immediate reaction of King David is not good. The fear of the Lord is unhealthy. And that's evident by the next verse. Look at verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. David was ticked. What's up with that, God? 
What in the world? And you know, he's not the first and he's not the last to react in this way. And maybe even you can relate to that. Maybe when you see God's holiness and that power, you're like, come on, I can't stand that about you, God. That is ugly and wrong. And you're in a reaction, if you relate to that, that is fairly normal. Not healthy, not good, but common. David had it. And then the next verse, we'll see David also, it says, David was afraid of the Lord. This, this is a bad afraid. This is not the healthy fear of the Lord. It's evidenced by what he says. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. David says, you know, the ark of the Lord that symbolizes your presence, I don't want it in my city. If that's what you're like, God, let's keep you at a distance. You're scaring me. And some people react with the concept of the fear of the Lord. They react in that way. They're like, oh, man, God scares me. I'm going to keep you at a distance. That's not healthy fear of the Lord. As we're about to see, that must change in David and it must change in us. Healthy fear of the Lord does not cause us to be angry at God and it does not cause us to distance ourselves from God. That's fear of God gone bad. What happened with David was that he had three months to think about it. Three months to meditate on what God was trying to teach him and everybody, all of us, with the death of Uzzah. Three months to process what God is like in light of this event and how he should respond and understand what happened. Now, you know what happened in those three months? The guy who was entrusted with the ark benefited greatly. I'll read you a verse. Verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. So David got word, you know, this guy said, you know, David, you told that guy, Obed-Edom, to hold the ark in his garage or shed or whatever it was. Um, Just so you know, he's like really getting blessed. He's treating the ark with great reverence and respect, and somehow, undeniably, God is blessing his family in great ways. And David scratched his head and said, maybe I made a mistake. And David changed his mind on the whole matter and decided to announce parade of the ark to Jerusalem, take two. Let's try to get it right this time. And that's what we read. Let's read the next verse, verse 12. David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. All right, that is good stuff there, my friends. Those two verses help us understand what the fear of the Lord looks like when it's right, when it's healthy and good. And so let's make four observations of what it looks like. The first is this. David went to bring up the ark. Before he said, I'm scared of you, so let's keep you at a distance. David still has the fear of the Lord, but this time he's saying, let's bring the ark to me. I want to be near to God. The fear of the Lord should not cause us to push God away, like being drawn to the fire. God's holiness should make us long. A little trembling, mind you, 
but yet long to be close. And that's what happened here. I'm going to use the word pursuit. Remember, we have four values at our church. Pursue, connect, serve, reach. And pursue is all about this desire to be close to God. David said, I want to be close to you. You scare me in ways, God. But oh, my knees may be knocking. I want to be in your presence. There's a balance here. Jesus helped us with this balance when he taught us to pray. Jesus, in Matthew 6, he said, when you pray, here's how you should pray. Say, our Father in heaven. You know, to be able to call God Father is an intimate privilege. You mean I should relate to him as his child, his son, his daughter? And the Lord said, yes. Let's jump up in his lap and call him Father. But Jesus said, pray this way. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. There's the reverence that's there. The relating we have with God is both enthusiastic familiarity with great trembling reverence at the same time. And that balance is really important. And David's got it. He wants to be near God, but he now understands more of the awesome holiness of God. Pursue him. The second is this, with rejoicing. When we left David, he was mad. He was angry at God. His heart towards God has changed. David's no more ticked at what God is like. He's now delighting in what God is like. The word I have here is admiration. We should admire God and celebrate all of who God is, including his holiness. And some people say, I love your grace and your love, God, but your righteous judgments, your holiness, uh, I don't like that part. No, we need to rejoice and celebrate and admire all of who God is. Are you glad God is holy? You know, as, as residents of Illinois, we should be more glad than any other Christians out there. And the reason is we know at Illinois what it's like to be led by corrupt governors, don't we? Uh, I was just thinking about it. In my lifetime, four Illinois governors have gone to jail. How about that, huh? And it's sad and it's frustrating when there is corruption within the leadership and you can't trust them. God, as our leader, says, I am pure through and through, no hint of corruption in me. And my judgment is unflinching and righteous always. And we should say, Lord, as a sinner, that's a little scary. But I love that you're like that and wouldn't want you any other way. I rejoice. I admire who you are. The third observation is this. When those who were carrying the ark, remember before, were they carrying it? No, the oxen were pulling it on a cart in violation of God's commands. There, you know, David's like, hey, I got an idea. How about we not use the cart? How about you guys go ahead and use the cart for whatever farming? uh, I think we should probably obey God's instructions and carry it according to what he said. One of the things about the fear of the Lord is it brings about obedience. In fact, Moses, when he saw the people trembling at Mount Sinai, he said, the fear of the Lord will keep you from sinning. And there's no doubt that in our effort to gain victory over our vices, 
A healthy dose of the fear of the Lord will assist us toward that end. I'll give you an example. My son Jake got in trouble this week. Jake uh, got in trouble and had this punishment. We took away his Wii for three days. Uh, Jake is addicted to the Super Mario 3D thing or whatever. And we said, Jake, for three days, for three days no Wii. And he's like, no, I'm going to die. You know, and it was a big deal. But we said, that's, that's your punishment, buddy. You're going to live. It'll be okay. And one day this week, during that season of punishment, I saw Jake. I was in the room on the other side, and he walked over to it real close. And he just gazed <laughs> at the Wii. And then he looked at me, and then he looked at the Wii, and then he looked at me, and he smiled, and he walked away. <laughs> and I thought, that's it. That's it. That's the moment of truth. You know, in that moment, he was like, I want this so bad. But he has an appropriate dose of the fear of the Father over there as well. And he loves me, and he wants to honor me. And he also wants to avoid further punishment. <laughs> And so though he wants it, the respect factor won the day. I suppose, you know, a child with less of that tremble could say, you know what, I don't care what you want, I'm going to play. That would be a problem. And that's what we do all the time. Think about it. We say, you know, God, I know you're here, I know you're looking at me, I know what you want in this matter, and you're telling me no. Maybe it's a piece of chocolate cake. You know God's saying, no, don't do it. Or it's a second drink. Or it's a purchase that's unwise. Or it's a pornographic website. Or it's a flirtatious coworker. You know what God wants. But sometimes we say, God, you're here. You've made it clear. I'm sorry. I'm going to do it. And that defiance demonstrates that our fear of the Lord, whatever level it may be, is still too low. And as we grow to tremble with respect and awe of God's holiness, increasingly we will find, uh, you're right, Lord, you're right, and we'll walk away. Obedience is one of the great fruits of the fear of the Lord. One more, one more, and that is worship. Remember, there were two praise parades. Praise parade part one, when they're all singing and marching the ark into Jerusalem that ended abruptly with Uzzah's death. That one didn't go so well. The second praise parade is the one demonstrated here. And we're actually going to continue to study it next week. And it's glorious in its celebration, but there's a new element The first one didn't have this. Here it says, when the ark had taken six steps, they paused. They sacrificed a bull and a calf as gifts to Almighty God and and, and recognition of his worthiness and greatness. I'm going to argue that there is a depth to our worship when we have the fear of the Lord. You know, when... You enter into worship. Sometimes the first part, it's just the praise and the celebration of how wonderful God is. And that is appropriate and beautiful and right. 
But when you've got the fear of the Lord, there's this added element to your worship where you tremble in awe of his greatness. And those who live with the fear of the Lord have a depth, a richness to their worship that is both celebration and reverence. And that was true on that day, and it will be true of us. Folks, the healthy fear of the Lord will serve us well. It won't make us run from God, no. His holiness will draw us to the light, will pursue him. And we'll come to a place where we, at first, we're confused, maybe even put off by his holiness, but we'll come to where we love that he's holy. We admire it. We will desire to obey him and be motivated like none before. And our worship of him will be rich with reverence in the midst of it. Fear the Lord. It's a good thing. We need it. You know, today is a special day. Today is my daughter Jorah's birthday. Jorah turns 17 today. Can you believe my little girl is growing up? Oh, thank you for that. You know what uh, 17 means? I'm praising God that we lived through her first year of driving. Uh, Jorah's actually done very well behind the wheel. She is a great driver. In fact, there have been times when I've watched her. I've come into our neighborhood, you know, at the same time she is, and she didn't realize it, but I pull in behind her, and I follow her, and I watch. And she drives the speed limit, not a mile over. At stop signs, she comes to complete stops, uses her turn signal. In fact, she's been so perfect, it's made me wonder if she didn't notice in the rearview mirror that Dad is behind her. The rear view mirror. I happen to have one here for our illustrative power. It dawned on me that that's a lot like living with the fear of the Lord. As Jorah drives, there's an added motivation to obey the laws and the rules because Dad is back there watching me right now. And she desires to please me. She loves me. And I love her. And I'm following her not because I want her to get caught. I'm following her because I want her to be safe. I want to see how she's doing. And when Jorah looks and she said, Dad's behind me watching. I'm going to do real well obeying the laws. And she also basks, knowing my father cares about me. He's wanting me to arrive home safely. And that's what it's like when we live with the fear of the Lord. As we go about, we say, you know what, Lord? I know you're with me all the time, and I know you love me, and you haven't set up these rules to ruin my life, but to keep me safe and to guide me to a life of excellence. And so, Lord, I just got an added motivation to honor you with my life. I'm going to fall down. I'm going to make mistakes, and I know your grace is sufficient to forgive me in those, but I'm desiring to do what's right, and I rest in your presence, your power your love, your concern for my life. And I want to bring a smile to your face by the way I live. Folks, the fear of the Lord, it's a good way to live. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for Uzzah. And someday maybe we'll have opportunity to thank Uzzah face to face for the lesson his tragic death brings us. 
God, let us not waste the the lesson learned here and help us to be people who, who think about passages like this, who study and meditate on passages like this, and as a result, make us grow in our reverence for you. God, as time passes, through Bible study, through meditation, through sermons, would you teach us what you're like? Would your holiness capture our heart? And would we have more of that awe? And would we benefit from the fear of the Lord increasingly in the days ahead? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take these next few moments to...